Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of fiction and nonfiction books. I'm Lenny Picker, a writer for Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with Julian Kulski, who's The Color of Courage, A Boy at War, The World War II Diary of Julian Kulski, was published recently by Akila Polonika Publishing, the sponsor of today's podcast. Hello, Mr. Kulski. Hello, Lenny. Yes, your life story, which I had the privilege of reading, you know, at, at least part of your life story in this diary is amazing, and I wanted to thank you for talking to us about it. I'm wondering if you'd start our conversation today by reading a brief excerpt from your diary, uh, and before doing so, just let the listener know when this excerpt is from, uh, what month and what year, and what is you had you been doing what had been happening to you right before the uh, the material that you're going to be reading about? Well, I was 10 years old when the war started, and at the age of 12, I joined the underground army, a, a unit organized by my pre-war uh, scoutmaster. And uh, then in 1943, uh, uh, they were looking for uh, my... Uh, for Ludwig Berger, the scoutmaster, and uh, I was arrested at home together with his wife. He fortunately wasn't there, and I was taken to the Gestapo uh, prison, and I was interviewed. Uh, My excerpt is from uh, uh, July 1943, and I was 14 years old at the time. Friday, July 9. I have already seen too much in prison to believe that the Gestapo will set me free. Sunday, July 11. Today, a long list of names was read of those who are to be transported to Auschwitz. Among them was mine. Suddenly, I feel very cold. I don't want to die this way. Tuesday, July 13, morning. Tuesday morning, I was sitting in my cell in total despair, thinking about my parents, whom I was now sure I would never see again. But the capo, the criminal trustee, suddenly called to me, you are being set free. Half an hour later, I was sitting in the prison van on the way to Gestapo headquarters. Three pretty girls, their heads erect, were sitting by me in the van. Their quiet dignity caught my attention. I started to share my joy with them, but they told me that they were to be executed. The Germans had found out that they belonged to the underground army. Back at the Gestapo headquarters, I was put back into the waiting room again. A man sitting near me had a face which one could call neither human nor animal. His jaw and cheekbones were all out of place and covered with coagulated blood. In place of his right eye was a raw wound. I could only wonder how he was still alive. Next to me, A lady of about 30 years of age was sitting on the next chair, quietly discussing with a companion the tortures 
she had gone through. She was talking about them in a strangely matter-of-fact way. Her arms crossed over bandages where her breast used to be. She said she had been told that she would be put on the rack sometime next day and implied that she hoped everything would end by then. These people who for their country or their faith were suffering torture and death so bravely made a very deep impression on me. And I could only wonder if I would be so brave if it happened to me. Thank you, Mr. Kalski. So let's just sort of take a step back. You were 14 at the time in 1943, the events that you just read about. Is that correct? That's correct. And what memories do you have of your life before the Germans' invasion of Poland in 1939? Well, I was a very fortunate young man. I was born in free and independent Poland during the 20 years of Polish independence. Between 1918 and 1939, uh, it was, we were brought up with a great deal of belief in freedom and independence and the patriotic movement. So because of our parents, my father, my uncles, who fought in the First World War to free Poland from occupation, that we appreciated the freedom. My father was the vice mayor of the capital city of Warsaw, and I had a very loving childhood. It all ended in 1939 when the Germans entered Poland. Now, I, I read somewhere, Mr. Kolsky, that when you were young, you had a Jewish girlfriend. Was that common for, for non-Jewish Poles at the time? Well, religion was not an important part of uh, uh, our life. Uh, my, my Jewish fr uh, girlfriend was uh, uh, not a uh, uh, religious Jew. She was uh, actually a Catholic, but uh, um, there were many Jews who uh, uh, were completely integrated into Polish society, and she was one of them. Of course, it didn't make any difference to the Germans who considered Jews uh, for the third generation. And if your grandfather or grandfather or grandmother was Jewish, you were Jewish and you were put into the ghetto. I met her during the 1939 when the Germans attacked Poland. I happened to be, and she was, at a vacation place called Kazimierz on the Vistula. And we played together, and then we, when we, I, we got back to Warsaw, we continued the relationship until a year later, she and her family was forced to move to the ghetto, Jewish ghetto, behind the wall. And I read somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, that you yourself have Jewish ancestors way back. Is that is that right? Well, the... the, the, the Jews in Poland have been there for almost a thousand years, and uh, there's been a lot of intermarriage. Uh, it was my great-great-grandfather who was the rabbi of Warsaw, chief rabbi of Warsaw, 
and uh, but uh, the rest of the family were Christians, and I was brought up as a Christian. Okay. And and what was this girlfriend's name, by the way? Zula, Zula Hoyetka, Zula. And after Zula. she was transported to the Warsaw ghetto, did you have a chance to visit her in the ghetto? Uh, at the first year and a half, it was part of the streetcars were still running through the ghetto. Now you were not allowed to uh, disembark or jump on the streetcars, but I did. I would uh, get on the streetcar, and when the guard, uh, the policeman uh, uh, guarding the streetcar, uh, I looked the other way, I would jump off, and then I would jump back on. So I visited her a couple of times. But uh, after 1940, uh, end of 41, it was not possible anymore. They, uh, this, uh, they made the trams run outside of the uh, ghetto, and uh, the ghetto was closed to everybody. And when you described about, you know, when you still were able to go in there, you know, breaking the rules by disembarking and then getting back on, you know, that put me in mind of what I read about the things that you did initially to resist the occupation, which also were uh, things that required some courage, things that required uh, a disregard, uh, if that's not too mild a word, for the rules. Um, so I, I read that one of the things that you did was to move road signs so that the Nazis would have a harder time finding their way around the city. Um, well, how old were you when you were doing that? Ten to twelve. Ten to twelve. When the Germans entered Poland, they made it very clear that they were going to kill all of us uh, in order to take the our land uh, for uh, their own use. Uh, so it was, they closed the schools. There was no need to uh, educate the slaves uh, who were going to be executed later on. So I had, we had plenty of time. So from the time 10 to 12, I would, uh, we would play around uh, misdirecting German traffic, uh, uh, taking down the signs and uh, uh, putting them in the wrong direction. And also we went around uh, picking up unexploded bombs, taking them uh, on a card to, the, to the, my friend's garage and open them up, uh, take out the uh, powder and uh, make our own bombs. It ended rather badly because at one time I, I didn't happen to be there, but my friend got uh, some one of the bombs while he was opening exploded, and uh, he lost a leg and an arm. And that was the time that my father decided that since he he was by then the mayor of the city, and he didn't have time to uh, take care of me, so he gave me. For the, the uh, I, I moved in with the scoutmaster, my pre-war scoutmaster Ludwig Berger, and it was at 12 that I wanted to join the underground army, and Ludwig Berger went to see my father to see if he would give me permission to join at such an early age. My father didn't hesitate, but my mother never knew about it. How did you keep it a secret from your mother? 
Well, I moved in with my scoutmaster, and uh, uh, for most of the time, uh, she she was unaware of my uh, underground activities. She was very upset after the war when she found out that she didn't know. And weren't you afraid at such a young age to be doing the sort of risky things that you've talked about? I mean, you talked about the friend of yours who was so badly injured when the when the bomb exploded. I mean, you were running a risk every time you were handling uh, those unexploded bombs, every time that you were moving signs, running the risk of being spotted by the Germans and being probably executed on the spot. So can you help me understand? Well, what, at first it was a game. You know, when you are 10 and 12 years old, you're not very smart, and the excitement of it was worth doing it, and we had no, we didn't realize the danger we were encountered. I only realized it after my friend lost the leg and an arm. And as far as the Germans were concerned, it was soon after that they, they started uh, shooting people on the streets and uh, uh, treating everybody in the, all the Poles in a brutal way, both Christians and Jews. And by that time, uh, I was in the underground army. I was a soldier. And uh, uh, sure, I was afraid, like everybody was afraid. But we, we, since we knew we were going to be killed, we wanted to die with arms in our hands, fighting. I understand that at one point you actually accompanied, I, I think it was Mr. Berger, your scoutmaster, into the Warsaw Ghetto to talk with the Jewish leaders of the of the uprising there. Uh, can you yes, tell us a little bit about that? And, he took me in into the ghetto. Uh, he gave me as an excuse that if, if anything happened to him, I was to report what uh, the Jewish leaders told him. Uh, I always wondered uh, if, if something happened to him, the same thing would have happened to me. But uh, being a soldier, I just went ahead. We went uh, into the ghetto and we, we, in an underground secret passage and were met by a couple of Jewish uh, freedom fighters who brought us some uh, old beaten up clothes so that the Germans would not recognize us as from being outside of the ghetto. And uh, we saw some horrible things happening on the streets. It was hell on earth. I saw some Germans hunting women, pregnant women, and shooting them just for the fun of it. Then we had a meeting with the leaders of the Jewish underground who asked for assistance with plans of developing bunkers, asked for reinforced concrete, concrete, uh, cement, and, and, and steel, and of course arms. And they also asked us, uh, asked Ludwig Berger to report to the uh, true the underground channels to London, what was happening to uh, uh, the Polish Jews. That was at the height of the genocide, and almost 10,000 uh, Warsaw Jews were being taken to Treblinka, to the gas chambers. And they asked that the West uh, 
take uh, in similar measures to German prisoners of war so that they would stop mass killing of Polish Jews. Of course, that was not possible, but uh, it... Uh, so we left uh, uh, the ghetto. Ludwig passed on the, the information to Washington and to London, and nobody, of course, believed it. And at some point, when you were a little bit older, I think you were about 15 in 1944, you were actually in the ghetto yourself, participating in, in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Is that right? No, I never participated in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. I was outside of the ghetto, and we provided some assistance. I was in the uh, fire brigade, so before the uprising, we were able to bring some arms into the ghetto, uh, because the Germans considered the Polish uh, uh, firemen as uh, uh, safe. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, they were under the command of the SS. Um, so we're allowed to be to go in uh, if there was a fire in the ghetto before the uprising, not during the uprising. Uh, to clarify, there were two uprisings in Warsaw during World War II. Uh, you fought in the 1944 Warsaw uprising when you were 15 years old, not the 1943 ghetto uprising. And at some point, um, I mean, in the excerpt you talked about having been uh, arrested and barely escaping, being sent to Auschwitz. Um, but you were taken prisoner by the Germans again. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you mean the, the, the second time? Yes. Well, this was at the end of a two-month uprising. The, the Red Army was on the other side of the Vistula, and... Uh, we expected the Polish army in, in uh, Italy and in uh, the Polish Air Force in England provide assistance to us, which never came. But we fought for 63 days. And during that brutal street-to-street, uh, uh, house-to-house fighting, uh, the Germans considered the Warsaw Uprising to be equivalent to Stalingrad fight of we uh, the Germans were not taken as prisoners they considered us as bandits and we shot out if, if they cornered us they would shoot us rather than take prisoners we took prisoners uh, there was already a difference in, in approach between us and the Germans at the end of the 63 days uh, the city was leveled almost and uh, we, the Germans decided to take us prisoners of war. And we surrendered, we capitulated, and they took us to a German prisoner of war camp in Germany. And how did you get out of there? Well, I developed pneumonia during the uprising, and which turned into a tuberculosis. And uh, we were being starved to death. We're tortured. Uh, uh, there was an international camp. There were tens of thousands of GIs in the camp. And five days before end, the end of the war, the American uh, command, uh, the line was on the Elbe. Our camp was uh, situated halfway between Magdeburg on the Elbe and Berlin. 
right in the center of the German Reich. But the American command decided that they would like to try to liberate the American prisoners of war before the Red Army got to the camp. And they contacted the camp commander and uh, the German Wehrmacht allowed thousands of American trucks to cross the Elbe and drive for three hours into the, to our camp to pick up all of the American prisoners. I happened to be standing at the gate. The gate was open. The German guards already knew that the war was lost, and a couple of GIs uh, uh, from Chicago uh, helped me onto the last truck that was leaving the camp. I couldn't walk. I weighed 65 pounds. I was a pure skeleton. Uh, but they got me up there, and uh, in the evening we reached the Elbe, we crossed, and I was for the first time free again. Unnoticed, known to me, next morning the Red Army, the Soviet Army, liberated the camp and uh, arrested all my bodies, uh, the, the Polish Home Army soldiers, and some, some ended up in Siberian camps, and some were executed. So uh, another another lucky escape for you. Um, just want to move ahead. We 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 have a few minutes left to sort of talk a little bit about your life after World War II. I understand that you spent some time in England, and then you moved to the United States in 1948. Um, can you talk a little bit about what led you to? Uh, pursue a career as an architect and also get involved in city planning? Well, as you, uh, since I didn't have uh, lost five years of education from the time I was 10 to 16, I went to school in England and got my Oxford Chemist School Certificate. And then I decided to be an architect and I went to School of Architecture at Oxford. But uh, I wasn't happy with uh, the type of architecture education I was getting there. It was too traditional for me. I wanted to be a modern architect. So uh, when I got my visa to the United States, I jumped to Queen Mary and landed in New York City. Uh, I came to this when I arrived on the shores of New York. I was an 18 year old heavily decorated veteran, but I only had five dollars in my pocket. I found that I had to work extremely hard. Uh, Fortunately, before I left England, I was admitted to Yale University, but I didn't have the money, so I had to work as a waiter in Miami Beach. And uh, then all through the five years of uh, graduate school at Yale, I had to work uh, both as a physical laborer and as a draftsman in an architect's office. Then as soon as I graduated from and became an architect, I opened my own office. I was very independent. I came down to Washington, and I became a consultant to the World Bank, and I designed buildings in 30 different countries in the four continents and spent a lot of time uh, traveling, 
to various countries, uh, while at the same time teaching architecture and city planning in, at the universities like Notre Dame and George Washington University. And after the war, when was the first time you returned to Poland? I returned to Poland for the first time in 1960. Uh, I didn't see my parents. I said goodbye to my father when I was 15 years old at, uh, in the ruins of burning Warsaw when he told me that not to go back to Poland. Uh, if I survived the prisoner of war camp, he knew I was being taken prisoner by then until Poland was free and independent. And uh, on my first job, uh, I had uh, I was designing some schools in Turkey, and I was able to stop by and see my family and my friends uh, in Warsaw in 1960. And how did it feel to be back there? Well, it was very strange. Um, it wasn't... Uh, the city was still only partly rebuilt. It was under a new occupation of the Soviet secret police and uh, Russian army. It was a very dark and unpleasant place. Uh, so the only reason I would, was glad to be there is to see my family. But I left as soon as possible and after that when I traveled internationally I had my um, United Nations passports I would be able to stop in Poland so I would stop at least once a year all through the next 50 years but uh, I would get out of it as fast as I could because the lack of freedom for me was stifling. There's so much more that we could talk about. We're, we're, we're pretty much at the end, but I just wanted to sort of close off something that you talked about before. Um, and what ended up happening with Zula? Do you know? Do you know what her fate was? I don't know exactly, but I suspect I know she was in the uh, Jewish uh, underground, and uh, she probably would uh, died in the uh, 1943 uprising, knowing her. But I don't have facts. There were so many uh, people killed and murdered inside the ghetto. And and finally, uh, in another interview. Um, you talked about how one of the goals of publishing this diary was to enable people to learn about the past and to avoid repeating mistakes that had happened before. Could you just briefly amplify upon that point? Well, I do a lot of uh, public speaking to high schools, middle schools, the Boy Scouts and Girl Guides in America. And I find that uh, uh, they are a wonderful bunch of young people but they are deprived by the schools and often by the parents of the things which they need most, and that is love of country, patriotism, the ideals of honor, of God, of country. So when I meet with them, it's a wonderful experience for them and for me, because I'm, I've become a teenager myself, and I'm able to pass on my experiences 
and I find that they are very starved for the ideology. It's it's a it's a sad thing. They are they they are extremely bright and ready, but when they get to college, uh, they get uh, demoralized. So I, I prefer to talk to the teenagers than to the uh, college crowd. Well, Mr. Kalski, thank you for the time today and sharing what obviously is just a small part of your rich life, which I know our listeners will uh, now have their appetites whetted to to read more about uh, your experiences during World War II. Uh, the book, again, is The Color of Courage, A Boy at War, The World War II Diary of Julian Kalski. Thank you again for your time, and thank you, listeners. Please join PW again for our next podcast.